Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing Elite Clubs National League, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, delighted to be with you for another edition of Breaking the Line and delighted to turn it over to Kristen Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL, who has booked another big timer, Austin McPhee, the assistant coach for the Northern Ireland Full National Team. Christian, set us up for what we're going to hear today. Well, Austin's one of the most genuine guys in the game in terms of being willing to share his time and honest perspective. And he's going to talk to us about his use of statistics and data analysis and preparing teams, some perspective on culture and development and how you prepare teams for success as a coach who's gone everywhere from the sidelines of a youth soccer club all the way up to being on the bench in Euro qualifiers and working with teams in the World Cup. Christian Lavers sets the table and Christian Lavers has the questions. Austin McPhee has incredible answers and it starts after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country. With a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. As you just heard, ECNL President and CEO Christian Labors tell us in the open, we are pleased to be joined today by Austin McPhee, who is an assistant coach of the Northern Ireland national team, amongst other great things. By way of Scotland, where Austin was a youth team player and his accent will give it away, McPhee moved to the United States when he was 20 and played collegiately for the UNC Wilmington Seahawks. After college, Austin played professionally in Romania and Japan before pursuing his coaching endeavors, and he continues to make a major influence on the game. Welcome, Austin. Thanks for joining Christian and me. Thanks very much. Uh, delighted to chat with you guys. Dean, I think you missed the uh, also the best head of hair in European competition, which unfortunately our, our listeners won't get to see. But Austin, we really appreciate you having us here, and uh, your background is really Really interesting, uh, as Dean just said, coming from Scotland to another Carolina product. We seem to have so much soccer expertise that has touched the shores of Carolina, and, and you came here for a while. But then you've had quite the journey when you started your coaching career, doing some pretty unique and interesting things post-playing. So maybe to give our listeners a sense of sort of the, the background you have as a coach, can you give us 20,000 feet of your coaching CV? Even when I was at high school, I was interested in helping even the young players there when, when we had physical education or whatever. And, you you know, right back to then, because we were always encouraged to do that. Even a lot of the boys there, like myself, was, were trying to pursue careers as professional footballers. And when I came to the US, actually the first coaching opportunity I was given, I had a couple of the basic licenses from Scotland, even as a teenager. 
just to work with young kids. I was given the opportunity when I was at UNC Wilmington to coach. I think at the time they were called William Wilmington Breakers, I think maybe Cape Fear or something now. And then I think I took the under 18s, although I was only maybe 19 myself or 20. It began to make me look even at a really young age at football, maybe from a different perspective. I also got injured really badly and I was out for 22 months. I had three knee operations in North Carolina and, you know, you watched your own team, you you saw what the coaches did and you, you maybe b- began to to look at football from a different perspective. And then from, from there, I, I, I got back playing, although I knew I wasn't going to play at the top level. I'd seen by going to the US that you could... You could travel with football. And when I graduated from UNC Wilmington, I was lucky enough to, to have a contact in Romania. I was there for just under six months and then I was in Japan for four years playing. But when I returned to Scotland, I think I was 26, 27 at the time. I'm now 41. And then I kind of took coaching more seriously at that point. I started my own youth academy, more in the structure, to be honest, of the, of the US than the UK which was quite controversial at the time because even back then it was a I think it was the first pay to play model probably in in Scotland now it's not the as expensive as the US but it was trying to professionalize youth sport where traditionally it was just done by dads and uncles and brothers and I started coaching young players in Scotland did my UEFA B license and when I was on my UEFA B license a coach of a small uh, semi-professional team obviously thought I had some competency and uh, invited me into the club was was Cowdenbeath at the time. Um, I had been coaching with my local amateur team and I remember when we went to the, when I went to the European Championships with Northern Ireland, I'd gone from, within a 10-year period, I'd gone from paying to actually coach the team to then going to the European Championships. So it was, uh, you know, I started right at the right at the bottom where they were amateur players, they they paid to play. I paid as well because it was you, somehow you had to fund the club and uh, we, we became, we had one season where we got to the National Cup final amateur football, then I went into semi-professional football. Then the, the semi-professional team, Cowden Beath, they got promoted and the manager, the head coach there got an opportunity in the Premier League and he took me with him. And, you know, that kind of gave me the first, I think, when you haven't been a top player, the biggest challenge when you begin to coach top professional players or professional players at the highest league in their country is that you wonder if you there's something that they know that you don't know. And I think once you get past that insecurity and you realize that players, I always tell myself the same thing. Like players will always respect a coach, but they'll only ask themselves one question. Can this guy or girl help me? And if they can, they'll respect you and give you their time. And it doesn't matter whether you never played soccer before, you've won the World Cup. I think you can gain the respect and lose the respect in equal measure. That's pretty unique to go from paying to be a, be a coach to uh, being in the European Championship qualifiers and all that. You've also... You had a stint uh, helping Mexico in the back room for the World Cup in 2014. You had a time with Hearts of Midlothian as well. Can you give a little bit of uh, background of what you did in those in those roles? My role when I first started was more analysis. So it was more the breakdown of the opponent, their strengths and weaknesses, set pieces, what have you. And then 
I've always had that as a background. And I think a lot of the professional players who just go straight into coaching, they maybe don't go through that phase of looking at the opponent, putting together the presentations, all that kind of thing, which is a different skill set. So I kind of got into higher level professional soccer than what I had played at that in that way. And I've always kind of had that as a default. Then at St Mirren in the Premier League, they began to give me more and more responsibility for coaching. I think now in most coaching teams, there is somebody who has one foot in analysis and one foot on the pitch. And I think you can have the best presentation in the world, but information only has value if the players understand it. I think I've probably got a niche there, which a lot of head coaches have appreciated. All the head coaches that I've worked for have played football at a very, very high level. And I think that they've maybe not got that analytical background in their career and because they trust me on the coaching pitch, but also trust me to bring maybe the key parts of the analysis with me. It's given me experience and, and a niche that there's a requirement for within the professional game. And I've read some stuff. You've obviously been praised for your eye for detail and sort of your willingness to get down into the weeds of analysis and really look for impactful things. And a couple months ago, right when the pandemic was starting, you and I had a, had a really interesting conversation that uh, Mark Botterill brought us together. So I'll give him a nod about impact and packing, a new analysis tool in looking at impactful passes. Can you talk a little bit about what that tool is? Maybe we can go even into how, you, how you've used it, but it, it certainly provides some insight into what kind of pass wins games, right? And teams that make better passes to win games versus just possession. So maybe I'll just leave it at there and turn it to you. As you said, it was kind of at the start of lockdown where I think sometimes in, in soccer, you're working in it all the time. You've never really got time to work on it. It's quite hard sometimes to for any coach or, or in particular in the US where so many of you are on the pitch so often and you play so many games in the tournaments that it's quite hard to take a step back and say, like, what am I doing? You know, why do I believe these things? So when I began to look at the way football had changed and even in since I kind of remember football, like I remember, you know, even in the late 80s, there was kind of more flair to football. And then it was maybe less organized in terms of tactics. Then that kind of Italian way at the start of the 90s where it was more defensive. The Serie A was the biggest league. Then football's kind of evolved to Guardiola bringing back the key point, the key parts of, of Cruyff and possession and dominating the ball. And then the Germans have kind of ripped that up from the 2014 when the World Cup final was. Um, and in particular, the, the game in the semi-final, I think, when, when they beat Brazil 7-1. And the, the guys who invented packing and impact, Germany won that game 7-1 and they had, let, I think I said to you before, they had less possession, they had less tackles, they had less shots on target, they had less corners, they, they had less of everything other than goals and Germany had seven and they had one. So when people began to dig into how you know, German transitional, fast, forward-passing football was being more successful. And I think you see that now with Klopp. And you see that with the amount of young German managers that are hired in the, in the English Premier League. What packing does, in essence, is it gives every pass a value. Now, 
I think in the US, a lot of the coaches, they do preach possession. And I think probably US soccer did preach possession. And in the academy system, a lot of teams were asked to pretty much play the same way. And I think I said to you before, when I, I, when I spoke to you, I think that the Germans have found a very, very efficient way of playing and efficient way of evaluating performance. So in essence, if I pass the ball to you and I'm a centre-back and you're a right-back and I don't eliminate any opponent, our team still has to get past 11 players to get the ball into the goal. However, if I pass the ball to Dean and Dean was behind their midfield, I would have eliminated the two strikers if they were playing 4-4-2 and four midfield players. So that pass would get me six points. But the pass to you would be revo- would be rewarded in kind of conventional possession. So I think I've got the I've got I dug the numbers out here. So although the Germans won on uh, what they won seven one, Brazil had fifty two percent possession in that defeat. But in packing, which is players eliminated through passing, they hammered Brazil 402 to 341. And then impact, which is specifically outplaying the last four defenders, they beat them 84 to 53, which is nearly twice as much. So what the Germans did was they took possession away and they evaluated, you know, what actually helps you win the game. And... The, the strongest correlation between any statistic and the result of the game seems to be impact. So in the, to give you, to stop with the numbers, but to give you kind of an English Premier League example, if you have over 50% possession, you've got a 39% chance of winning the game. If you have under 50% possession, you've got a 37% chance of winning the game. So there's not a, that strong correlation. But if you if win win on impact, you've got a 65% chance of winning the game. So eliminating the last players in the pitch is the key thing. How you do that and your philosophy behind it, whether you want to try and score with 14 passes or you want to try and score with two passes, is irrelevant. And going back to what I said earlier, I think that, in my opinion, the US has the best athletes in the world. I think the Olympics kind of shows that. And football is more physical and more athletic if the ball changes hands. So it don't, doesn't really make sense for me that US soccer is, is so big on possession when you've got a nation of athletes and you, maybe you'll never spend enough time with the young players that you've got to make them the best technical players in the world. But it doesn't mean that you can't be the best team in the world. I think maybe just the ethos is to be more, to stick with the athleticism within the natural DNA of the United States. Well, it's interesting. We have a bad case of imitating what everybody used to do here, you know, coming Johnny come lately. So whether we're, what, what nationality we're imitating just depends on the year. So I think what you've done, I mean, because right now we're in that stage of possession, possession, possession. If you were to talk about sort of a generic, admittedly oversimplified perspective of what's being talked about in American soccer circles, but what you're talking about is the difference between possession for possession's sake and a pass that breaks lines, that eliminates defenders, that progresses up the field, and actually having a statistic that measures that that's far more related or or correlated to winning. And I think for those who might have missed it, and I want to repeat this because I think it's pretty 
stark example. Over 50% of possession in the Premier League gives you a 39% chance of winning games and under 50% gives you a 37% chance. Yeah, that's right. So to your point, that sort of center back, right back pass versus center back attacking midfielder pass, it looks the same if you're looking at possession and you turn on any game in this country and the two stats that you're going to see on the TV are how far somebody ran and then their, uh, their possession percentage but it doesn't really give you a sense of the impact. And I'm, I'm using a non-statistical term now that player had in creating chances. And I guess the flip of it would also be, you could measure some defending quality in the same way, right? And the fact that you're, you don't get your line broken. You don't have players that are played out of the game so easily or so quickly, right? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. it. It gives, if you are the, the lesser team, it gives you some data that you can be good at without the ball. But my biggest fear in American soccer is that the constant preaching of possession, possession is easier to keep if you don't take risks. The kind of player that the US isn't producing is the one that does take risks. So like, there aren't many American players who play Champions League football in the final third of the pitch. There's more goalkeepers, more defenders, more midfield players, but that last bit is ultimately the bit that you know, if you score a goal, you lose the ball, right? So that's that that last bit is impulse, it's creativity, it's the it's the dribblers, it's the, the the players who get you off the seat. And I would worry that if Messi was born in the US, he'd be taught to pass it sideways. Too many parents would think that he's a ball hog and everything else. And you need to, I think, you need to encourage players who lose the ball because. Somebody needs to do something different to score a goal. The other thing I think that would help in the US if this was more understood, and it's very, very simple to understand, is the amount of times a kid gets in the car and the parent's opinion of their child's performance, which is probably most vocal out of any country I've been you know, in the US, is completely subjective. Like, they can go, you did really well today, or they can go, you should have done better today. Now, most most American most parents have an opinion on their child's performance, of course. But Tony Cruz is the best packing player in the world. He averages seventy nine packing points per game. The average game has three hundred, right? So three hundred players are eliminated for each team. Now, Tony Cruz is pretty much carrying thirty percent of that himself, so, and it's really easy to understand. And maybe for the first generation soccer parent it would give them something to evaluate or think about a little bit more rather than just what they perceive to be the sheer effort of their child. And, you know, flip side in terms of impact or impact, should I say, it's a, it's a cleverly put together word of the hybrid between effective and impact. Messi averages the highest in Europe and he bypasses the last four defenders on average eight. 18 times per game. So at one point per defender. So it gives you a real tangible objective outcome of performance, both, both individual and collective, and gets you away from the more what happened with the possession? Are you making players play safe when they should be more creative? If you're an attacking player, you, you want you you have to you have to impact, right? Because and as a defensive player, you don't want impacted. And as the other players in the team, ultimately, you're trying to get the attacking players the ball. 
So I'm going to go to extremes on here so that everybody gets this. Cause I think for a lot of people, this is a new statistic, but on the one hand you have the smack the ball up the field position of maximum opportunity as uh, it was referred to at one point of just smack the ball down the field and kind of four press. And on the other extreme, you have possession for possession's sake, which largely goes sideways backwards and into corners. And so what this statistic is looking at very nicely is that that middle ground of a completed pass or a positive outcome in a penetrating fashion, right? So it is passes that get points based on the number of defenders that the ball gets behind, but where possession is maintained. It's, it's calculated risk. So it's uh, the, and the players, the reason, the, re, and the, the reason why packing points are basically scored by eliminating the attackers and the midfield players, because they will be passes that are played by David Luiz, by Tony Cruz, by defenders and midfield players. From where Tony Cruz runs the game from, which is in and around the centre-backs most of the time, He's just eliminating strikers and midfield players to give your Messi's and Ozil's and this kind of player who plays behind the midfield where there's the least space in the game. So they have to be the most technically gifted players, the chance to impact. So assessing the game from an individual perspective, really simply. And again, it's objective. You very, very rarely would me and you watch a game, watch a pass and then argue have six players been eliminated or seven, maybe once every 20 times. And ultimately, there's enough data there that's not going to skew it too much. Me and you might code a game or code a player and be one out, you know, and, but they're going to get 100 points. The team's going to get 300 points. But it does. The other thing I think for a young player is they begin to think differently. Like, like in American sport in particular, I think this is something that could be really embraced because you are stats mad because of the nature of your sport. I mean, an American football field has every yard, you know, on it and people get data on, you know, how far you've covered the ball, your shooting percentage in basketball, your base percentage. It's just, I think it's something that would, that would give a lot of people clarity and take away a lot of he who speaks loudest is listened to. Well, we have we have some issues with that in this country right now. But so if you if you look at this, then you're you're basically you're measuring the impact, the ability of a player to get the ball into situations of maybe numerical superiority because you've bypassed enough defenders to create that, or I guess qualitative superiority to get the ball to special players in dangerous places where they have a greater opportunity to get in behind. Yes, yeah. and I think at a higher level, what it begins to do, so for example, if you had a more traditional wide left in professional football, talk a traditional wide left would take the fullback on on the outside and cross the ball versus a more modern wide right. So he's probably left-footed like Ian Robin, comes in the pocket, dribbles in, looks a lot more exciting maybe sometimes, but you can be conned like the traditional, by by the traditional wide left dribbling past the fullback, that's he's eliminated the whole defensive back four, and crossing the ball, he's got four impact points every time, because he's crossing it into an area where the defenders are facing their own goal, they can't defend properly in that situation, and the striker can go and head it. 
versus you see this little guy or girl dribbling in off the left, cutting infield, dribbling, 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 dribbling. Looks like they've beat four players, but nothing's actually happening at the end of it. They would get nothing because they deserve to get nothing because they haven't eliminated anybody. The ball is now in the middle of the pitch. There's maybe a couple of defenders on the ground, but they haven't played the ball behind. There hasn't been a run behind. And what I begin to think about in professional football is if you have a wide left who likes to go on the outside, you need a striker who can head the ball. If you have an inverted wide right who's going to come in the pitch, you're going to need a striker who goes and runs behind the, the line or in your podcast breaks the line. <laughs> Let me uh, go one step farther on this. So you obviously can use this statistic from a, t- from a team perspective, right? But also going down even farther because there's two pieces to every pass, right? There's the choice of the passer, but there's also the positioning and the awareness of the receiver to find those spaces and pockets between the lines. So is the same statistic calculated on an individual basis and a team basis? Can it be used in both ways? Yes. Yeah. So the other thing that I would say about this is that the concept, I think at the highest level, you can buy obviously the package to go and analyze this. But I haven't done that. And I think that the concept is the genius because you can apply it to whatever resources that you've got, right? So a lot of the people listening to your show will be youth soccer coaches who stand with maybe a team manager and maximum one assistant coach at the side of a pitch. And their players are, you know, they're good players, but they're maybe not going to be professional players, but they can still help, you know, in the size of squads you've got, you could have five of the subs scoring the team. You could maybe only score the attacking half and make it easier. So you get quick, simple data, which is important to your team. If you're playing a team that normally beats you five, nothing at youth football, you maybe just focus on, can we restrict them to 12 impact points throughout this game? So you can apply it with your own, you're not picking up a whole service and saying, I need to apply this to, you know, AC Milan are going to apply it different to Wilmington Breakers under 13s. It's maybe more a coaching aid for Wilmington, you know, and a psychological help for the young players to understand more meaningful soccer. So I wouldn't like to be too specific in saying you need to do this or you need to do that. Hopefully what we've talked about is enough for people to think about it and, you know, if you pass the ball through the midfield four, you get four points. If you pass it to the fullback, there's maybe a perfectly good reason for passing it to the fullback, but you're not getting any points. Before we break here, I think it's actually, if you, you know, you notice this in the 2020 World Cup where there were some teams that were eliminated very early with boatloads of possession that just seemed to take forever to get anywhere dangerous. But then you also saw it in the Women's World Cup and you look at the American women who don't necessarily dominate the possession stats but at any moment are dangerous and threatening to get behind you in 14 different spaces. To your point, you can use this how you want. You don't need to have the formal statistical packages set up, but just being more aware of the risk-reward trade-off, especially in the development process, seems to me something that is very oversimplified here when you just talk about keeping possession of the ball and the, the habits that you might inadvertently be creating in players when you're rewarding safe decision-making all the time. Well, I, I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like if, you, if you look at the success of the women's national team, right, they were, they were physically better than every other team. They were better in both boxes than every other team. They weren't as technically good. 
and but they were defensively in a really good unit and they played to their strengths and they won the World Cup. Now, your culture, I think, gives you that team. And the way football is in America gives you that team and the amount of time kids have and where soccer sits in society probably gives you that team. Whereas you look, you look at the female teams in Europe have very quickly become technically better than the American teams. You know, like Japan's technically better, Spain's technically better. So they're kind of following the, the male model in those countries, which is about playing at a really young age, small-sided games, technique, but football is more in the culture. So they've ended up with almost a, a mirror image of their male team. You know, the Spanish women's team is a possession-based team. The Japanese team is very technically good, maybe lacks a little bit of quality sometimes in the final third. But the, if you take the, the, the men's soccer in, in America and the national team, I think for a period anyway, still trying to be European and the most success the American team have was when it, when it played more like the women's team that won the World Cup. We are breaking the line with Austin McPhee, the assistant coach of the Northern Ireland national team, amongst other great things. As you listen in his discussion, we'll be back with more Austin after this message. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky, along with Christian Labors, the CEO and president of ECNL, who has booked Austin McPhee, the assistant coach of the Northern Ireland national team. And Austin, before I turn it over to Christian, just tell us the story of how you became the assistant coach, because that's a big deal. I was actually watching a, a, a game um, and it you know, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the, the head coach at the time was Michael O'Neill and he was sitting behind me watching the game. I think he saw some of the things that I was writing down. And then we had a, you know, a few, we had a conversation. We were watching Celtic Aberdeen at the time. I was with St Mirren and he'd spoken to me about initially going on, almost on a trial period to the the games against, uh, it was before the 2014 World Cup against Uruguay and Chile. So I went there as a, as a member of the staff. Um, it went well. And then I started with the, uh, with the team for the on more on a permanent basis for the uh, 2016 qualifying campaign for the European Championships, and I kind of got on the bus at the right time. 
And again, I think that niche between analysis and coaching, um, and I had you know quite a lot to do uh, more specifically with set pieces back then. And seven years on, I'm I'm still with the team. I mean, the, the, what Michael did was um, incredible. He he took uh, the team from I think they were 113th in the world to top 20. Uh, we qualified for the the 2016. World uh, European Championships in France. We got out of the group. Um, we then got to the playoff final for the World Cup, where we lost one nil to Switzerland, um, a very controversial penalty. And then we lost in the in the extra time for the in the playoff for the Euro 2020 to Slovakia two months ago. So the the team hasn't just. And prior to that, I think it was 30 years before they qualified for anything. So I think that you see with a lot of sports that there's a leg legacy effect of the success. I think you saw that in women's soccer when the States were first won, won the World Cup in the Rose Bowl, was it? Um, and that you know you see that with so many different sports, you know, South Korean female golf, for example, Russian tennis, and the, the impact that you know the the success that the team that Michael had was on on Northern Ireland and the belief for the players that they could do more than just take part and they could actually achieve something was was incredible and just to give you a, few, a couple of like Northern Ireland at one point only had thirty time thirty two full time professional footballers it's got a population of one point eight million and it's managed to overperform and not that. I didn't even have any knowledge of packing an impact then, but there was a lot that was done to try and maximize the efficiency of the team. You obviously are a big believer in statistics and packing and impact are, are just one example, but can you talk a little bit about how you use statistics, whether you have a specific example or just uh, more generally in your preparation or work, whether it's with Northern Ireland or or any of the in St. Mirren or Hearts or wherever you've been, and what statistics you look at, how you use that in planning training or, or planning uh, tactical setups for the team, for an opponent. Can you give any sense of that? Yeah, I, I think th this is the, the simplest one. Northern Ireland has always been able to produce big one-off performances. Historically, they've beaten Spain, they've beaten England. But the, the biggest problem when you're qualifying in Europe in the qualifying groups, there's normally six pots. And Northern Ireland, due to historical poor performance, had always been in you know pot five or pot four. I think we were in pot, we were the first team ever to win a group in pot five when we qualified for the Euros in, in 2016. So if you're in pot five, you, you need to try and make it a, a playoff with the team that's second because in, in Europe your big eight are very, very hard to beat. You know, in the group for the European Championships 2020, we had Holland and Germany in our group. So we have to make it a mini group between Belarus, Estonia and ourselves. And historically Northern Ireland had struggled against your very, very small teams like Luxembourg, San Marino, you know, developing nations like Azerbaijan. So what you need to do if you're just a little bit above that, is beat them home and away. So if you can go and take 12 points from those games. So we looked about at why they weren't doing this. And from this point, Northern Ireland gone on a run of beating home and away, pop four and pop five teams, occasionally pop six if we're in a group of six, 16 times in a row. 
I think in those 16 games, we've maybe won half of them by one goal because we don't have, and I say with the States to a certain degree, um, we don't have a Champions League, you know, centre forward. And they will they will turn your 2-0 win into a 5-0 win. So what we looked at was how England, Croatia, Holland, Germany, how do they go and win? What is their data for winning 8-0, right? So we looked at three things that, because we took data that we thought we could do. And I've got one example here for you. Croatia never lost these games. They just never lost them. And they adjusted how they played. They always played Mandzukic, for example. They didn't overplay, like we talked about, at packing an impact. They didn't waste possession. They got the ball in the final third 80 times. They crossed the ball 40 times and they shot 20 times. So we thought, well, we can do that. So we set the players' objectives. You know, like Croatia will win 10-0 if they do this. Germany will win 8-0. Uh, Holland will win 6-0. Like we might win 2-0 or 3-0, but we must try and match the numbers that give them the opportunities because all the time you're playing against a team that isn't as fit as you because the players aren't playing at such a high level and it's normally 5-4-1 or 4-5-1 or something-something-1 and they defend their half. So when when you're not a team that feels dominant, you can begin to waste your own time. You roll the ball around the back four, you you enjoy possession because we are normally that team. Like against Germany and Holland, we are the team that's defending our own half. So when we began to give the players these objectives, we began to not lose these games and began to win them. I remember a, a game in San Marino that I was just looking at these numbers throughout the game and it, it was nil-nil at 75 minutes. We won 3-0. Faroe Islands at home was another good example. That we, we, we took away the focus on you must win this game. The thing you must worry about is the score. To if you, if you get to their final third eight times, so you've got to win the ball back, get there, and then you've got to get a shot or a cross. Because a cross leads to a corner, cross leads to a throw-in, et cetera, et cetera. You haven't got to overplay and what have you because we didn't have the players for that. You know, the team's evolved a bit more since then, but, you know, at one stage, I think in a four-year period, we'd never scored a goal where there'd be more than five passes together. And we'd qualified for the Euros, got to a World Cup playoff, played against some of the top teams in the world and been very competitive. So that was one example, which is very simple, that we took data that we thought we could replicate, which would give the team clarity on the pitch. It wouldn't be... So if you'd got to 40 final third entries, 20 crosses and 10 shots in the first half, and it was nil-nil, there was no panic. Because these numbers will show that if you hit these numbers in a game, you're 95% winning. And that's a good chance. So again, it, football and soccer is so emotional that... There's, now it's becoming a bigger trend in Europe that a lot of managers or head coaches don't speak to the team after the game because what's the upside? The downside is you comment on something that you don't really have knowledge of. Like a lot of times the coach will be emotional, he'll not have all the data, not have watched the game back. And these are top coaches that do this, that they'll wait till the Sunday or the Monday to talk about the game because players are also more knowledgeable now with, you know, Instat and Y Scout, and you know the amount of football that's on TV. It's hard to take words back as a coach, and I'm sure everybody listening to that has, has been in that situation. And you know, what is the upside of speaking to the players after the game? You know, I think sometimes 
you have to consider that. You know, is, are you better just saying, look, see you Tuesday, see you Monday, see you tomorrow, until you've had time to maybe watch the video or think about it? I think that's a really cool and interesting point because so often you take the statistics guys and things can be so unemotional or so black and white, but you've just taken statistics and you've tied it to the, the human relationship and recognizing that if you use statistics right, it should, it should support a healthier, better relationship between coach and player than in just using statistics as a weapon or as a, as a tool, which I think is a really, really interesting perspective. So if, if I go back to the example you used, and I think it was you know eight, getting the ball into the final third 80 times in the course of the game. So when we talk about game model principles a lot, we talk about teaching the what, not the how and leaving the how up uh, to the players in some degrees. Like this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what we're trying to do in each area of the field. And the how is going to be contextual, right? It's going to be very, very different. So when you're talking about those statistics of that, that benchmark, if you will, of 80 final third entries, then do you go a step deeper and talk about how you're going to get to that tactically? Do you look at it, it the teams you're playing and identify different maybe uh, sequences of play or areas or mismatches that you think will set you up to get that amount of uh, final third entries? Or how, how do you take that, that number of just getting the ball there into something very contextual for an opponent? Again, a... I think like in answer to your question, the, the simplicity and how it was done was, there, there's genius in the simplicity and it's almost unfashionable. Like Northern Ireland under Michael at that period when we were looking at these things normally played 4-3-3. What we did was we changed the, the system against the so-called minnows of Europe, and normally we played 4-4-2. So we played two strikers, and we took a, mid, a central mid... In essence, what you're doing is you're taking a central midfield player out. So you're taking out, taking away, and you're giving yourself double width on either side, and you're giving yourself two strikers in the box. So if you're going to say, get to the final third 80 times, the easiest way to probably do that is pass it wide and get the wide to run forward, right? And if you're playing against a team, switch the ball, get them to run forward. If you're playing against a team that's just going to defend the edge of their box, they're almost going to let you come there. So that isn't particularly challenging. What we then tried to do was take away things we didn't want them to do. Like, they were very, teams were going to be hard to play through in the middle of the pitch. So why have three central midfield players there? It's just going to tempt you to play that pass. If you want to cross it and you want to shoot, you're better with two strikers against a team that's going to be low and what have you. Because we didn't really feel at times against those sides we could necessarily play through the pitch. Combination of maybe we didn't have good enough impact players. We don't really have a number 10 that would play in the half turn in those areas. They were more traditional straight line midfield players. Maybe Stephen Davis before he he, he played in that deeper role where he now plays for Rangers and, and the national team he was probably the best pocket player if you know what I mean playing the half turn number eight that's not going to lose the ball but I think that that the system suited getting to those numbers and the system the system told the players what to do which was to pass it wide don't overplay cross it in a good position to kill a counter-attack and repeat and don't get bored doing it because if we got bored doing it and thought we were Barcelona we'll end up losing the ball when we're open in the middle of the pitch, getting counter-attacked, causing ourselves more stress, wasting passes, not forcing them to defend. Because ultimately, I think sometimes the difference between different levels of defenders 
is the amount of mistakes that they make. And that's the same with goalkeepers, I think, that they're measured not on the good things they do, they're measured on the lack of errors. And when eventually, and I used the example of the Sarino game, it's nil-nil at, you know, in 75 minutes. What they want is you to pass the ball slowly in front of them. What they don't want to do is consistently defend their box with two strikers in there, consistently get ran on the outside of them, consistently have switches of play to go and move. So they want you to play slow. And I think that a combination of the data, the data led to the system and the system led to the success. And of course, the, you know, there are training sessions to, to go and back that up, but it wasn't rocket science in the slightest. Well, that's another really important point, I think, especially now when you have technology that in one form or another is becoming more and more prevalent at younger and younger ages. The phrase that the teams with the most technology and the most data and the most statistics have the worst records. So you're taking data and statistics and keeping it very, very simple and practical and understandable so that they're really... Sometimes there's no need to know about it. I think that's for the... like, And that's where I think Michael was, was fantastic is that he had access to a lot of the data, but sometimes he didn't use it at all. Sometimes he, sometimes his own instinct just, just went with his instinct and nine times out and he was right. If he did feel that the data needed to be used, it was, it was maybe in a five-minute meeting and it was simple and it was clear. But what it did give you on the side of the pitch was like absolute clarity. And it gave you a reference point that was more than your own eyes. How is this game going? You know, the amount of games that you watch, you know, so it's, it's, I think it, it can really help you as a coach. And I think I, when I spoke to you about the Azerbaijan game, we got, remember half time in the Azerbaijan game, they must have had 75% possession. But it was away in Baku in the heat in June. And, you know, you're feeling emotionally bad about the game. And then when I've learned, since learned about packing and impact, we were winning in both packing and impact they were just passing the ball about in front of us. And then we were counter-attacking and, you know, we were eliminating their last four defenders and they were never eliminating ours. We ended up winning 1-0 and the emotional feeling was we stole that. But we actually, I think, a draw on packing and impact is probably fair. But if I'd known those numbers and had access to them at half-time, I think I would have been, I would have thought differently about it. So I want to go back to something you said earlier because I thought it was really interesting. And, it, and again, it diverts a little bit from statistics, but you talked about, I think your phrase was culture gave America that team talking about the way the women's national team played and then talking about how our most successful men's national teams have played and the importance of culture and, and, and how the players develop and how the, the country looks at the game. Go deeper into that. What do, you, what do you think about culture? How do you manage culture? How important do you think it is in the development process because uh, I think that was a really interesting comment that I don't want it. I don't want to be overlooked in this because I think there's a lot more depth to that than uh, just a quick reference. I think that you can't. You can never fight a culture for a start. So you have to look at what you've naturally got. What does the culture naturally allow you to do? Does it allow you to be creative? Does it? What where where are its priorities? And, you know, the weather and everything else has an impact as well. And you see that in young players in the US. You know, if you contrast a player in San Diego and a player in Wisconsin, there, there's a lot of differences. Uh, you know, if you can contrast the top ones, there's probably a lot of differences between the two um, just because of the environment that they're growing up in. And I think that if you take Spain, for example, they've had Cruyff live there and affect their football culture and affect Barcelona. And 
there's a legacy of that in terms of the way that their young players are are coached and the way Spanish life is. I think it took them a while probably to go to a kind of high press situation that, that, that Guardiola managed to add. But I think that if you then go to the German way of football, especially just now, it's efficient, it's transitional, it's powerful. There's maybe not quite as much flair in it as there was in the Spanish way. And that's probably the same in the culture. And then if I look at my own country in Scotland, like Scotland was very, very successful. I think it qualified for the most consecutive World Cups after Brazil between 1970 and, and the World Cup in America, actually, 1994. And Scottish football then was, was pretty much off the street. And it took us pretty much 20 years to figure out that the street wasn't going to be good enough. Like our culture was football off the street. It was dad's coaching. It was, you know, a lot of kids managed to do 10,000 hours by accident. We did have world-class players in the attacking third. There wasn't the influx of European players into England. So half of Liverpool's team at one point was Scottish, et cetera, et cetera. Then life changed and we didn't change with it. And Scotland didn't qualify for 20 years for a, for a major tournament until recently. And now those players have come from a different football culture. And I think I spent four years in Japan and I think they're technically so good because they practice things incredibly hard. But in their culture, it's quite hard to be too creative. And, you know, they see sometimes create creativity as being selfish. So, you know, can you name a, a you know, a top, a top Japanese play, player in the final third? Because in the final third, you need to be, you need to be selfish. You need to be out for yourself. You need to take the adulation. Whereas, you know, the players that have done well more for them, if more been midfield players, for example, who are technical, who help the team more, or selfless, all these things. And I think with the US is that, you know, I, I know they're, I think always searching for new ideas is good, but, there's so many good things in American sporting culture that the rest of the world can't compete about, can't, can't compete against, you know, in terms of the athleticism, the organization, the will to win, I think is preached from a really young age in the States, much more than maybe Americans who haven't grown up there realize. Determination, good side of aggression in a lot of your sports. And I think sometimes trying to, you know, if you're going to try and play the Spanish way, a lot of those key sporting attributes in America will be lost a bit because Spanish play slower, right? They play slower. They build up with more passes. It's more short passes. You know, your average Spanish athlete is very, very different to your average American athlete. And then I think you have to then think about, well, what kind of football, and I think Germany has done this really well, what kind of football will suit the States? doesn't mean that everybody needs to play it because you're such a big country and the influence in Southern California is going to be hugely different to, to New York. But I do think that there should be some more thought as to what suits America rather than trying to grab an idea and, and fit America into that. Well, amen to that. So I appreciate that. I think my, my last question is your career to playing collegiately here, starting a, an American model soccer club in Scotland to coaching in the Scottish Premier League and then now coaching, you know, in Euro qualifiers in the World Cup, doing statistical work in the World Cup. It's a pretty awesome path. 
but you're an incredibly generous guy with your time. And so it seems to me, you know, we have a lot of people who look and, and they look at the future and where they want their coaching to go or what they want to do in the future. And I heard something the other day that the best way to, to have the career that you want is to really focus on what you're doing at the time and be great at it. And you seem like the kind of guy who's doing that. When you talk about the Northern Ireland opportunity coming from somebody potentially looking over your shoulder at your notes while you're we're both scouting a game, can you just talk about your career path generally from a perspective of looking at how you've gotten to where you've gotten and what the future holds for you and sort of how you look at coaching development yourself? Yeah, I think the first thing that you need is an opportunity. An opportunity, sometimes you have to, to risk a bit to get that opportunity. And in my own, with my own career, you know, I, took, I, I risk leaving a Scottish Premier League club, which was I didn't need to leave to go to a national team. I just felt that that would, and it was a it was a lower role with the national team, but I felt I would learn more at that time. Once I went to the Scottish Premier League and worked with a couple of players who played in the English Premier League, I realised that if I was just myself and I always focused on having a reason why I said something or a reason why I made a coaching point, the players, would, irrespective of whether they're international or not, you know, they would respect you if you felt that you were trying to help them. And... I didn't feel that you had to do too much more in terms of analysis to to really help players more than they'd maybe been helped before. And ultimately, you know, Michael O'Neill gave me the opportunity to work at a significantly higher level than I had before. And the five years working under, or six years working under him, and now with Ian Barraclough, the new manager, that they've both given me freedom as uh, and the opportunity to get experience. And it's exactly the same with a young player, you know, and everything's not been perfect as well. You know, when I was at Hearts, the manager there was was sacked. I stood in for the team. I've stood at, you know, I've been the interim manager there in the semi-final of the League Cup in front of 50,000, lost 3-0 live on TV against Rangers. Uh, then two weeks later, I went to Ibrox Stadium, 60,000, lost 5-0. So... You know, everything's not been perfect, but I think those things are really good for, of course, creating resilience, but you, you learn a lot more from those scenarios than when it's going swimmingly well. Sometimes when it's going swimmingly well, there's a temptation to believe that you have the answer and, and to stop digging. And I think that lockdown has, has given me the opportunity to learn a lot more about football, reflect on my recent coaching and I now look forward to the game away in Rome, our first World Cup qualifiers away to Italy. So that gives me something else to focus on. And I'm sure I'll, I'll also work in club football again somewhere and hopefully an environment somewhere that I can, I can learn a lot again. Austin, fascinating answers to always inquisitive questions from Christian Labors. Thanks so much for being on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We do appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to chat with you and Christian. And, uh, you know, it's been a tough year for everybody. And I know that you've been right at the front trying to get things back on track. Well, I'll tell you, we would uh, love to have you over here for one of our educational events here in the next six to 12 months as we return to normal. So I will certainly be reaching out to you on that. But in the meantime, good luck with everything you're doing. You are uh, the international man of mystery heading <laughs> from uh, country to country. <laughs> 
All right, guys. Thanks very much. Thank you, Austin. Fascinating interview led by Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of the ECNL. I want to thank our producer, Colin Thrash, and all the great people at the ECNL. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.